Hello, and welcome to our next episode on Romans. Today, we're going to begin working through chapter 13. In our last episode on Romans, we wrapped up chapter 12, uh, where Paul uh, encouraged the church and exhorted them to have genuine love for one another. He provided some examples where different members of the body of Christ might show that love, whether it be in service to each other or teaching, leading in a variety of different ways. And the chapter closes with a reminder for Christians to continue to act Christ-like, even in the face of people, our enemies, specifically, <laughs> treating us wrongly. And that brings us to Romans 13. So we'll dive right in and see where Paul takes us as we continue working through the more practical application of Romans. So we'll start at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, so this is a fitting passage given the events of the last year with all of the politics and civil unrest and the election and pandemic and everything that goes along with that. Uh, this is a passage that has probably been, has gotten more traction in 2020 uh, than it has in, in many years prior to that. Uh, this is a passage often referenced by teachers in the church. And so with a passage that is referenced often, there's a tendency to kind of remove it from its context and just kind of make it say whatever you want. And I'm not saying that whenever you've heard these verses referenced in the last year that they are wrong. All I'm saying is that we want to make sure that we're understanding God's word as it was intended, which means it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for the original audience. So let's dive in and see what Paul is saying here. In chapter 13, Paul continues uh, in this practical application of the first two-thirds of the letter to the church in Rome. He spends a lot of time laying out the groundwork for understanding God, his attributes, our sin, need for a savior, what has been accomplished for us, and how that all ties together perfectly in God's plan for salvation. And here in these last few chapters, Paul really hammers home a lot of practical application for how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves. The first chapter for this application, chapter 12, focuses really heavily on how church members are supposed to care for one another like family members. Paul outlines a lot of specifics for how we care and serve. Uh, toward the end of the chapter, the focus shifts toward uh, from church interactions to how we conduct ourselves when we are wronged. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and we continue loving and sharing the message of Christ. And now in chapter 13, we see the focus shift toward how Christians should conduct themselves in light of their governing authorities. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities because every person in authority has been placed there by God. So in our own context, with presidents, senators, governors, mayors, even though we are casting a vote in the elections that occur... It is ultimately God who ordains and places people in their respective roles. Paul goes on to say that to resist these authorities is to ultimately resist God who placed them in their authority. Now we need to stop here and clarify. 
what Paul is and is not saying. Paul is not saying that you should always obey whatever your government says, regardless of what they say, simply because it's being said by a governor. There are other passages throughout scripture where followers of God are praised for resisting governing authorities when those authorities are against God's law and desires. For example, we can look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were three men who were told by governing authorities to bow down and worship a false god. And are these three men showcased in the Bible as those who resisted God because they resisted this governing authority? No, because these men understood the hierarchy of authority that Paul shows here in Romans. As a through line for all of this writing on submitting to authority, you can see a clear hierarchy of authority by Paul. He says that we are to submit to governing authorities. That's a clear hierarchy. By submitting, we are acknowledging that we are governed and are therefore under governing authorities. But beyond that, Paul says that those governing authorities are put in place by God. So above those governing authorities is the governing authority, God. And so when it comes to choose, do we obey God or the government? We ultimately submit to the governing authority over all things, God. And it saddens me to see this passage so often abused by churches who are on both sides of the argument today. We have churches who say, see, it says submit to governing authority. So we're just going to submit in, in, in everything that we do. And they hold no level of respect or care to what God has commanded them to do as leaders in the church. And then you have people on the other side who say, well, if the government does anything I don't like, I'm just going to say that they are resisting God and that justifies my not submitting to anything that they want. We must be able to balance how we conduct ourselves by walking with scripture, not our traditions and especially our own opinions. All right, so after those first two verses, Paul outlines what good government looks like. So if you're, if you're going to submit to a governing authority, it would help to know what they should look like. And Paul says that they are to be a terror to those who do bad, i.e. those who do not do God's will in terms of moral conduct, things like murder, stealing, things like that. Uh, and Paul says that if you do things like that, you should be afraid of your government because they do not bear the sword in vain. Now, this is interesting, and a lot of people just kind of gloss over it and don't give it any thought. But what Paul is saying here is so important for us, and I don't want to miss it. He says the government bears the sword, and they act as God's servant and carry out God's wrath on those who commit wrongdoing. So there's a few things here. First, when Paul says that the government bears the sword, he's likely referring to capital punishment. To bear the sword and be referred to as God's avenger would be odd terminology if the expectation is that the government just gives you parking tickets every now and then. If you're punishing people with a sword, it's probably not going to be spanking them with the broadside of the sword. The term bearing the sword meant to bear the power of death. And God approves of that here. So when it comes to capital punishment, Paul argues that it's something that God is not only in favor of, he says that a well-functioning government will carry out punishment like that because they are acting on God's behalf. And there are obviously many, many passages, especially in the Old Testament, where we see the death penalty put in place and endorsed by God. Second, this is, again, a reminder for Christians not to take vengeance into their own hands. At the end of the last chapter, Paul said that vengeance belongs to the Lord. If you are wronged, you do not get permission from God to then go and become a vigilante and take justice into your own hands. 
which is why Paul shifts his focus to a properly functioning government that acts on God's behalf. That is where justice and vengeance is normally taken care of. And so in submission to this properly functioning government, Paul commands that we pay taxes. We support our government by paying them what we are asked in terms of finances. And Paul says we also pay them respect and honor. So even if you disagree with a politician or governing authority, you are commanded by God to pay them honor and respect. They are placed in authority and to rob them of the respect and authority they are owed is to resist God and his sovereignty. Now, we like to look at things in our day and age and say, well, things are just more complicated now than they were back then. Our taxes go to causes we don't support and people are voting politicians in that stand for things that God opposes. And that's where some context can do us some good. Remember who Paul is writing this to. This is written to the church located in Rome. And if you aren't sure where that is, it's located at the heart of the Roman Empire. That empire just so happens to be the empire that would go on to burn Christians alive, dress them in animal skins, feed them to lions and bears, and invent new and horrifying ways in which to torture and kill followers of Christ. When Paul wrote this letter in Rome, the level of persecution wasn't at that point yet, but it was well on its way. And it's to that empire that Paul says to not only pay taxes, but respect and honor. Now, obviously, there was a conversation that we can have about how far is too far in terms of government role and uh, paying taxes towards certain causes. I am all for those conversations. What I'm saying here, though, is that the general principle that Paul applies for Christians is to be good citizens. Submit to authority when that authority is in line with God's desires. Pay taxes, pay respect, pay honor, and work toward a good government that enforces God's will in God's way. All right, this is a pretty short chapter, actually. So let's just read the remaining verses and we'll go through the rest of what Paul has to say in chapter 13. So we'll pick up in verse 8 and we'll read through the end, which is verse 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the work of darkness that and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All right, so in keeping with the theme of owing things like taxes or revenue or respect or honor, Paul now says to owe no one anything except love. Unfortunately, a lot of people have read this to mean that Christians can never take on debt of any kind, never take on a loan or anything like that because, well, it says it right there, owe no one anything. But what Paul actually means here is that Christians are to be known for always paying back what they owe. 
Christians are not people, or at least they should not be people, who take on debt and neglect to make their payments. You don't skip your mortgage or your rent. Uh, you, you pay people back if they lend you cash and you return what you borrow. That is the conduct of a Christian. Now, this doesn't mean you can't ever let anyone pay for your meal or anything like that. Paul is more referring to official business transactions, things that are documented. Paul is okay with you letting your friend buy coffee and donuts every now and then. So chill on that. And this here in verse 8 is really cool and something that we should aspire to. Paul says that by loving one another, we fulfill the law. Here, Paul was talking about the law given by God, and he cites examples like not committing adultery or not murdering or not stealing, not coveting, uh, because to do any of those things would be to violate the act of loving our neighbor. Obviously, if you love someone, you don't murder them. <laughs> it seems pretty straightforward. If you love someone, you don't cheat on them or cheat with them. If you love someone, you don't covet their belongings and you don't steal them. And so in walking in love with our neighbor, which means everyone, everyone is our neighbor, we fulfill the law of God. That's so cool. And I say it's something we aspire to because who among us is prideful enough to actually think that we have perfectly fulfilled the law? Christ fulfilled the law in his living a perfect life. And now, because of his mercy and grace, I am invited into relationship with him where I am able to kind of humbly stumble my way toward loving my Savior and my neighbor. And now at the end of the chapter, Paul's tone takes on a sense of urgency. He says, you know, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. He's saying, church, wake up, be aware, be on the lookout, make sure that you're walking in love as Christ called us to. He then says the salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, Paul is not saying that we aren't really saved. If you put your faith in Christ, you are totally and completely saved. We saw that in Romans 10. But also, there is this element where we are not totally and completely saved, not when it comes to our status as a child of God or that we are in danger of kind of tripping out of our salvation, but that we still experience elements of a fallen world. You and I will sin. We will get sick. We will break bones and say stupid things when we get mad and we can get cancer and eventually we will all die. And so the salvation that Paul refers to here is the complete and total deliverance from sin. No more sin, no more death, no more anything in a fallen world, only God in his presence. And so with that urgency put before us, Paul again reminds his audience of topics he covered earlier in the letter. Christians are to leave behind orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy. Instead, they are to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So here again, we see this dual reality of our nature in Christ. We, we put on Christ. In our salvation, we are identified as wearing the uniform, if you will, of Christ. Think of it like, like wearing the American flag on your uniform if you're a soldier. You wear that patch and you are immediately identified as an American and you're treated as such. And yet, Paul says that we are to make no provision for the flesh, for sin. So we are identified as Christ's and Christ's alone. And also, we must take care to not provide ways for sin to enter back into our lives. It should remind us of the statement that Martin Luther made, uh, where he, he, he said we are simultaneously both justified and sinner. We are innocent through God's eyes, through Christ, and yet we still wrestle with sin. And so the encouragement for me, at least in all of this, is to continue 
putting on Christ, knowing that we are in Christ and that the sin we so rightfully deserve punishment for is taken care of. Every and any sin, past, present, and future, is wiped away through the blood sacrifice of Christ. It is through his sacrifice that I am able to step into his righteousness through faith and become a child of God. And I hope that that is an encouragement to you as well. But I want to know what you think about this. We kind of blitz through Romans 13. So do you see anything differently when it comes to submitting to government authorities? Do you agree with the outline that was provided or you disagree? I want to know your thoughts on that. Is there something I'm missing? This is such an important chapter for Christians to to wrestle with and understand, especially nowadays. So I really want to know your thoughts. But as always, thank you for tuning in. May God bless you and I will see you soon.